Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. We're going to continue through our series through the book of Acts. And uh, this morning we get to Acts chapter 2. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback somewhere near you. And uh, that's uh, our gift to you if you need a Bible. We're going to look at the church at Pentecost. And so uh, maybe this is not working. So we'll just roll with that. The Church of Pentecost. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and tell you a story. It was 2018, back in the day when we could actually travel, right? And so 2018, every fall break, we would go as a family to the beach. And uh, this year was going to be no different. We were not going to be deterred by a little guy by the name of Michael as he was coming through the Gulf. You might not remember the, the Hurricane Michael that came through. And as you looked at the radar, Hurricane Michael, it looked like he took up the entire Gulf of Mexico. Do you remember this? And, uh, and, and maybe, maybe some of you do remember this because you, like myself, were on fall break and you went to the panhandle and you chose poorly that year as a, as a place to go. So you had to, you had to leave, right? And so um, we went really far down. We went really far down south. And uh, I remember standing on the edge of the beach and for the very first time looking out at the water and it didn't look like rolling waves. No, it looked like a washing machine. The water was agitated. There was foam coming in. The wind was blowing. And I stood there and I thought to myself, there is a massive, massive storm miles away from me. This storm has got a mighty rushing wind about it that you can't deny. There's something about it that's that when it makes landfall, it's going to totally destroy homes and businesses and churches. And we know this because we actually sent a disaster relief team down there not, not long after that to do some aid and do some work. And our students, even that summer, I mean, months later, they were, they were uh, one afternoon going to a church to kind of help out where all that was left of part of this church was just the concrete slab. I mean, this was a massive storm. And you couldn't deny the power of Hurricane Michael. As we get into Acts chapter 2, there is a mighty rushing wind that we're about to read about that sometimes gets questioned. Sometimes it gets kind of, you know, thought of in different ways. Different, denom- different denominations cover this section of scripture in different, in different ways, in different manners. But what I want you to see is that there is a mighty rushing wind, and it is the Holy Spirit that comes upon the life of the church to empower the church for his mission, and you can't deny it. Yes. Amen. Right. We're back in one place. Let's go. Let's gather. Right. So Francis Chan wrote this in the book, Forgotten God. Most believers in churches are known for talent and intellect rather than spiritual power. What's worse is that we're okay with it. I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them believe that they cannot. As we look at churches, we, we often settle for really good talent on the stage. And we've got some really good talent on our stage. We settle for lights and we settle for smoke and we settle for lasers. and We settle for all kinds of things to try to invoke some emotional response in a church service. When really what we need is the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit to move in the life of the church. A.W. Tozer some 50 years ago said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do will go on and no one would know the difference. 95% of what the church does would go on 
And no one would know the difference that the Holy Spirit left the building like Elvis, right? He let, that was for the older generation? No, okay. <laughs> if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the new church, the New Testament church in Acts, 95% of what they did would have stopped. And everybody would have seen the difference. As we look at the church and as we get back into the book of Acts, we look at it as the church today, no differently than the church of the New Testament. Tozer says, I do not believe in a repetition of Pentecost, but I do believe in the perpetuation of Pentecost. That what took place on that day is alive and active today in the church as well. Amen? You, ner- you, you Baptists are getting nervous, aren't you? Ray Pritchard says it this way, the filling of the Spirit is not primarily an emotional experience, and it certainly is not reserved for a few super-Christians. It's nothing more than normal Christian life with the Holy Spirit in control. So I want to say it to you this way. Pentecost is about Spirit-filled evangelism, not spiritual emotionalism. It's about Spirit-filled evangelism. What takes place in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Exactly what takes place in these few verses that we're going to cover this morning is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the power of God on his people for the purpose of being a witness. And what we see is that they are a witness at that very moment to every tribe, tongue, and nation in that moment because there's all kinds of people gathered for Pentecost. Jesus had promised this Holy Spirit long before Acts chapter 1. He promised it back in John chapter 16 when he said this, When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will not take what is mine. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that he, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is using some repetitive nature here, telling us that there's some purpose behind the Holy Spirit coming. It is to guide us into all truth and to glorify Christ. And so if that's not taking place, then it's not being spirit-led because the spirit doesn't speak on his own. He takes what he hears from the Father and he passes it on to you. But what he does is he wants to glorify Christ. So in your life, if it's being guided by the spirit, then there's two things that you'll see take place. You'll be guided into all truth and your life will be sanctified in a manner that is glorifying Christ in the way that you live. This is why we need to be filled with the spirit. As Paul would say it this way in Romans, as he gets into it, there, are, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life, of life set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the spirit has come and we walk according to the spirit because it is is impossible for us to to meet any requirements of righteousness apart from Christ. And so now he's going to take what Christ has done and apply it to the body 
of believers. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what Paul then begins to argue is that if you are not walking in the Spirit, then your mind is on things of the flesh, and you find yourself not being guided towards all truth, and you're not leading a life that is glorifying Christ. You find yourself being hostile towards God because you're allowing sin to continue in your life that shouldn't be there. He says that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life is because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What Paul finishes here with is, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if, he will lead you and guide you into all truth. There will be a, a difference in the way you live because it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that he now gives to his church to fulfill his ministry and mission that he began long ago. So let me say it to you this way. After all these verses, and you know, Paul, he's hard to understand, and uh, there's a lot of things that are going on there. If there's no conviction of sin in your life, it might be evidence that there's no presence of the Spirit in your heart. Can I just sum it up that way? If there's no conviction of sin in your life, it might be evidence that there's no presence of the Spirit in your heart. Because what is the Spirit's job to do? Lead and guide us into all truth and to glorify Christ. And you can't do that if you're walking in the flesh. Your, your life will rebel against that because that's not your nature any longer. So let's pray this morning as we jump into Acts chapter 2, that was a long intro, that we would have the Spirit lead and guide us into all truth and that our gathering here today would glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pause. We thank you for your word. It is rich and it is deep. And Father, we would be helpless to understand it apart from your Spirit. So we would ask that your spirit would reveal to us all truth. That you would lead and guide us in this moment where we gather together as the body of believers. That you would lead and guide us into truth and that you would speak to each and every one of us. That you would lead us away from the flesh. That you would lead us towards walking in the spirit. That you would convict us of sin. Make us aware of your righteousness. Make us aware of how hostile you are towards sin. That we wouldn't accept it any longer. And that we would walk in obedience to you. Father, we do pray that this morning that your spirit would be alive and active in this church and it would be evident. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Acts chapter two, verses one through 13, let's go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. And rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phangia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word. The first thing that we see is the church was founded at Pentecost. The church was founded at Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, why is this significant? We need to look back at the Old Testament in order to understand the significance of Pentecost. And so I, I know that many of you are familiar with all the feasts that are listed in Leviticus chapter 23. It might be your favorite chapter in the, in the Bible. So I'm going to kind of cover a few of those and show you how that all the works of Christ fulfill what took place in the Old Testament. And so as we read the entire narrative of Scripture, it's all pointing towards the fact that God had a redemptive plan through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's all playing itself out through the covenants of Christ. And so you have observed the Sabbath. Then you have the Passover. We're familiar with the Passover, right? We all, we all know this Passover. It was back in Exodus and all the plagues came to Egypt and, and Israel was, they were in slavery. And God said, look, well, I'm going to kill the firstborn. So in order for the angel to pass over, you're going to have to sacrifice a spotless lamb and you're going to have to apply the blood to the doorpost. And when the angel of the Lord sees the blood on the, on the doorpost, it's going to pass over. And so sure enough, this is exactly what happens. And this is what takes place to free Israel, to lead them out as God's people towards a promised land. And it all took place because of a Passover. Now we know that Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb. As John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So we know that Jesus is coming. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the spotless lamb of God that will be shed and his blood will be applied to those who believe and that death will pass over us and we will have resurrection life with him. Amen. Amen. So this is exactly what we see taking place with the Passover. We know that God is through the Passover, Jesus being murdered on Passover, we know that God is bringing out a people for his own possession to a new land. So you take that and then you go a couple days later to the, to the Feast of first fruits. So just so we can see it there in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheath of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheath before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, if Jesus was crucified on Passover and we're going to have a first fruits offering a few days later, the day after the Sabbath, that's going to be resurrection Sunday. So Jesus, his rising from the grave is the first fruits promise of what God's going to do to a new covenant people. Are you following me? So this is what's taking place, and this is what we see. They also celebrated this because they were taking 
portions of each area of the crop and they were bringing it together. And this is the first fruits. This is what the resurrection or the harvest will look like. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 through 20, 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we know that God's sacrifice of his son was approved because of the first fruits resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he says in Acts chapter one, so you wait here, not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out upon you. So as you look at the next feast that pops up, it's the Feast of Weeks. So weeks later on the 50th day is the Passover. This is also when they celebrated the fact that they were given the law. Moses was given the law and they wrote it on tablets. And so here we have a people waiting in celebration. And what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it's not writing God's word on tablets, it's writing it on the hearts of those who are his. This is new covenant theology. This is what we see in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He's like, look, I'm making a new covenant. It's going to look a little bit different. It's going to follow the same pattern for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I am going to make for myself a covenant people that I forgive. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. This is what God does. God does the salvation. God does the redeeming. God brings us back. It's all because of his plan. He sent his son to be the Passover lamb, that he would be the first fruits of the resurrection, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh so that he could have a church, his very own people that would be a new covenant people with the law written on their hearts so that they could live lives that aren't hostile towards God. Woo! Man, that's good stuff. So Luke, Luke is just telling us what's going on. Luke, as I told you, he's a physician and he is into the details and he's one of the greatest historians of his time. And so Luke is giving us the story not to invoke some emotional response or to tell us to try to recreate some spiritual, emotional moment in worship. He's giving us the historical account of the redemptive plan of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ongoing fulfillment of that plan by sending his Holy Spirit to indwell the church. This is what's taking place. I hope you're taking notes because this is good. John MacArthur said this way, Jesus died at the right moment, he rose at the right moment, and the Spirit came at the right moment. All on God's timetable not in response to any activity of men, and thus the church was born as a first fruits fulfillment, just as Jesus had risen as a first fruits fulfillment and died as the Passover fulfillment. We are filled with the Spirit with a purpose and a plan. It is God's plan. Ephesians, Paul says it this way in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. God is bringing out a brand new people, a new covenant people. He is not just taking out Israel from the bondage of sin and slavery in Egypt. No, he's bringing out a people who are in bondage and sin and they need to be redeemed. And he's making them a new covenant people and he's making them a first fruits. He's making them the church until one day when we see what we're going through right now becomes reality, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment for eternity. This is what takes place at Pentecost. So my question would be, how do you know if you've been born again? That's a very important question, don't you think? If salvation is what God does in regenerating our heart, then how do you know? Is it because you prayed a prayer? Is it because you raised your hand? Is it because you walked an aisle? Is it because you, can, you went to vacation Bible school and you said, I admit, believe, and confess? Is it that reason? Is that what you hold on to? Is that why you know that you're born again? Do you know that you are being born of the Spirit, as Jesus would say, born of the Spirit? Do you know that there's evidence in your life that you've been baptized with the Spirit? It's dangerous language, but it's Jesus' language in Acts chapter 1. I'll tell you how you know. There's a change. You're not the same. You can't go on in sin any longer. And when it pops up in your life, it grieves you because it is not your nature any longer to walk according to the flesh. You want to walk according to the Spirit. You want to put your mind on the things of the Spirit. This is not your home. This is not your nation. This is not your place. We have a heavenly kingdom that is calling us. We have been drawn out from sin and slavery as God's people. And he's written it on our hearts and you can't deny it. You know because your spirit within you groans. It yearns for a future harvest. It guides your life into all truth and the sanctification taking place in your life is glorifying Christ. You're consumed with the conviction of sin. You're concerned with righteousness and it's made you so aware of the hostility of sin towards God that you are emboldened to proclaim the good news to those who are far away. This is what the Pentecost was all about. God pouring out his spirit for spiritual evangelism, not just some spiritual emotionalism so we can feel good. We were given his spirit for a purpose, to carry on the ministry and the mission of God. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 9, 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There will be a harvest. There's been a first fruits that God is pouring out his spirit on the church. And one day he will call his church home and there will be a mighty harvest of every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and we will stand before the throne of God as his people brought out from sin and slavery. Where are the laborers, though? Where are those that are convicted by the Spirit to go out to preach the good news? Pentecost is about spirit-filled evangelism, not just spiritual emotionalism. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were together. I feel like a broken record, but I feel like it comes up every single week in the book of Acts that the church gathered together. They, they gathered because they needed one another. They were directed by Christ himself to stay together in Acts chapter 1, 4 through 5. And while they were staying with them, while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When you are baptized with the Spirit, two things take place. You're inaugurated. That's a good word this week for some of us. Or installed. The word baptized means immersed. You've been immersed into a new era of God's redemptive plan called the church. So Jesus said himself, it is better that I go away so the Spirit can come, right? Why is it better for him to go away so the Spirit can come? Because there was God incarnate, God in the flesh, one body doing the ministry and mission of God. And when he goes away, there's going to be a new body, the body of Christ called the church that is going to be filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead to go out and be his missionaries all across the world. It's better that I go away so I can send the Spirit. You're inaugurated. You're part of the redemptive plan of Christ taking place. Acts doesn't end. It keeps going and it's still going today. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, you were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free and all were made to drink of one spirit. You were immersed into the body of Christ. Number two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit came you will receive extraordinary power for a Christ-exalting ministry. You will receive the gifts of the Spirit. You will receive the fruits of the Spirit. You will, you will receive power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, so that you can, led, led by the Spirit, be guided into all truth and glorify Christ with your life. This is the purpose of Pentecost. At Pentecost, the church was baptized into the Spirit united in the Spirit, unified in the Spirit, and used by the Spirit for the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. So the church was founded. Second thing I would see is the church was filled with his presence. The church was filled. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's two imageries that take place here as we see God's presence fall on the church. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word spirit can also be translated in the Greek wind. We see this in John chapter 3 as Jesus is talking Verses 6 through 8, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here is the imagery of the Spirit coming upon the church. This is salvific language. This is what it means to be saved, that the Spirit has filled you. The Spirit has come upon you. There's been a regeneration of the heart. Salvation is God 
accomplishing his work through Jesus Christ, but then it being applied to the believer's heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin said it this way, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. The work of Christ, the atonement, the sacrifice of Christ was completed on the cross. The Spirit's job is to bond that to us so that it is written on our hearts. We are forever changed. The other one there is that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on them. God's presence continually shows up in the Old Testament as, as fire. Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 2. Now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame. The angel of the Lord, that's representative of pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel, not an angel, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. Exodus chapter 13, 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them in a, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a, in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. The presence of God was seen in the fire. And Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. We see that the presence of God filled the place. And not only did it fill the place, but it rested on them as individuals. This is so important because the presence of God had been in a temple and the curtain had been torn. Now the presence of God was going to rest on individuals. The very presence of God filling people. Now Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is amazing. When Pentecost took place, the presence of God not only filled a room, it filled individuals with the very presence of God. So there's not just one temple that you go and make sacrifices to any longer. No, there are multiple temples where the Holy Spirit goes out and does the work bringing people to the Father. Romans 8, 9. You, however, as we've read this earlier, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, if, that's a strong word there, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If. There's a change that has taken place. Is Christianity, for us, more a system of beliefs that we adhere to? A lifestyle in which we conform to? A political party in which we align with? Or a religion in which we were raised in? Or is it a dynamic, intimate relationship in which we walk with the Spirit, we live and we move, and we're dependent upon the saving work of Christ, leading and guiding us into all truth and glorifying Christ in the way that we live? If, in fact. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. Those who have received this, the Holy Spirit are aware of a power dealing with them and working in them. A disturbance, something someone interfering in our lives. We're going along and suddenly we are arrested and pulled up and find ourselves different. That is the beginning. That is what always happens when the Holy Ghost begins to work in a human being. There is a disturbance 
an interruption to the normal, ordinary tenor of life. There is something different, an awareness of being dealt with. I cannot put it better. That is the essence of the Holy Spirit dealing with us. Church, I have a question. Is that how you would describe the intimate relationship you have by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? That you're being dealt with. Listen, if you're not convicted of the sins that are in your life, it might be evidence that there's not a presence of a spirit in your heart. The spirit deals with us. The spirit leads and guides us into all truth. And that means that when we decide that this isn't truth, the word of God isn't truth for us, we're going to go our own way or we're going, to, we're going to be progressive in the way that we think about our Christianity, it means that there might not be a spirit within you, but you've agreed to something early on or walked an aisle that didn't actually do anything to change your heart. The spirit deals with us. Is this how you would describe your relationship with Christ today? Would you say that the Spirit is intimately working on your heart? Would you say that it's evident in your life and that the Spirit's presence is leading and guiding you into all truth? That your life is making decisions that glorify Christ over yourself? See, where the truth is not cherished, the Spirit is not welcome. Where the truth is not cherished, the Spirit is not welcome. If you do not cherish the truth of God's Word in your heart, then you're telling the Spirit He's not welcome. If that doesn't describe your relationship with Christ, then it could be because you don't know the Spirit. The church was founded at Pentecost. The church was filled at Pentecost. And the church is fervent for His purpose. Let's keep reading. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? As, a, as we see again, this is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Actually, this is how the entire book of Acts will play out. We'll see it go from section to section to section. And we're here today because it has gone to the ends of the earth. But this day, from every nation under heaven, there were men gathered. They heard a commotion. They heard a sound. And they came to see what it was. And they saw that there were men speaking in their own languages the excellencies of God, the glories of God. They were, they were sharing the gospel. Tony Morita, pastor, he associated this odd scenario with it being Galileans is that Galileans were not very educated men. They were not known for their linguistic you know, abilities. So he said, imagine with me, if you would, Uncle Si from Duck Dynasty standing before all different nations. And he walks over to the Chinese government and their ambassadors, and he begins to offer in perfect Mandarin Chinese the gospel of Jesus Christ with, you know, the proper accent and all. Yeah, holding his sweet tea, no doubt. Yeah, holding his sweet tea. 
if you saw Uncle Si do that, would you not be like, what is going on? Is this not Uncle Si from Louisiana? Like, what? this is not right. Oh, he must be drunk. That must be new wine. Since when does wine make you speak in other languages, right? This is a remarkable experience that's taking place. And the obvious point of this moment in Pentecost was that God was filling his church with a purpose, a power and a purpose to be his witnesses to all people. The church, to be biblically accurate, as we wonder what it means to gather together as the body of Christ, to be biblically accurate, it means it is a body of believers filled with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that we can preach the gospel to every people, every tribe, and every tongue for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the church. And this is what we see take place in Revelation chapter 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy is Jesus Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. There's a purpose. If we take the biblical definition of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian, it means this. We are Jesus-empowered proclaimers of the gospel. Jesus-empowered proclaimers of the gospel. The church is gathering as one body, unified by one spirit under one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and unashamed of one gospel message. It's all because of Jesus. J.D. Greer said it this way, there's no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who does not become a mouthpiece for Christ. I'm going to end with a Charles Spurgeon quote. I know there's a lot of information that I cover today, but I want you to understand that the Spirit was given the power of God for a purpose, and we are part of the redemptive plan unfolding until the ends of the earth. Charles Spurgeon said this, if Jesus is precious to you as he is to the spirit, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it in your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband or your wife. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friends. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak, and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. If you really know Christ, you're like one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You're like a beggar who has discovered the endless supply of food, and you must go and tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus, and you are anxious that they should find him too. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com or subscribe to hear more sermons like this. 